like many people, my favorite part of Christmas Eve services is at the very end, this is like the one thing, whenever you're planning a Christmas Eve service, you know you cannot change this part. You gotta end with Silent Night, and you have to end with candles. And, and so candles get handed out to everyone, but my favorite part about it, and, and the way I think it should be done, I'm not real legalistic about a lot of things, but I'm, I'm saying this now for whoever's planning the lighting of the candles. We need to start with one candle. One candle gets lit, and then it goes and it lights another, and then it lights another, and all of a sudden, it's really cool. And if you ever get the privilege to be like up front like this, you get to see this room go from darkness, and the light begins to spread, and you see it pop up, and it kind of spreads here, and then someone reaches across the aisle, and it goes here, and then all of a sudden, you see one back there, and it just, and then the whole room glows with just this, this warmth in the middle of darkness. In many ways, as the light passes through the room, what it's doing, it's illustrating the last verse of silent night, silent night, holy night, son of God, love's pure light, radiant beams from thy holy face with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus Lord at thy birth. One candle's lit and then it spreads and it spreads, it's this dawn of redeeming grace, that the great light has come and it's broken into the darkness. The hope of that dawning light, it's found in so many passages of the Bible, but there's one passage that's probably the the most familiar and one of the most stunning places where we see this light show up, and it's in Isaiah chapter nine. We're gonna look at two things connected to this great light that comes. This light provides hope, and this light promises peace. Hope in peace from one little light. If you're able to stand for the reading of God's word, would you stand with me? This is God's bright word in a world of sometimes darkness. But there will be no gloom for for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter times, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Gentile of the nations, or Galilee of the nations, the the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor you have broken is on the day of Midian. For every brood, boot of the trampling warrior in battle to mode and every garment rolled in blood will be burnt as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is, is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Feel free to grab a seat. 
The promise of verse one is that gloom would give way to light. What, what I wanna do is start with like, what is the gloom that, that was over the land that people were both living in and dwelling in? The gloom had become their way of being, their way of life. In a general sense, gloom is anything that's broken in this world. It's anything in this world that's not as it was originally designed and created to be. It's the, the brokenness we have relationally. It's the brokenness we feel physically as our bodies don't work right. It's the brokenness we feel spiritually as our hearts are either numb to God or angry at God. It's the brokenness that we experience politically as nations rise against nations or as nations fight within nations. But each of these gloomy things, they take real shape. They're not just theoretical. For, for God's people at this time, the, the gloom that was over them, very specifically, was the, the Assyrian Empire, this empire that existed to the north, just to the north of Naphtali, this, 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 this global superpower that was knocking on the doors of their, their national security and threatening conquest. God's people were living under the shadow of an Assyrian invasion. That's the time period that this takes place in. They were coming for Israel. And Naphtali and Zebulun, they were the very far north end of, of, of Israel, and it would have been the first places that were conquered. This nation of bullies seeking to conquer. Verse 2 talks about another type of gloom related to it. The people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light, and then this, those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. It's an interesting phrase. It, it actually means death's shadow. It's the same word that's used if you, if you know Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Though it was looming, the, the, the long shadow that a, the Assyrian invasion cast upon Israel was that of a very real death. Death's always a looming threat. We don't have to look very far to have a right now example of these sorts of gloom happening in our world as we think about Ukraine. We think about invasions. We think about death, we think about war, we think about conquest. And it's true for us in different ways, but it's true. The Bible makes very clear that, that, that there's this great enemy called death that casts a shadow on every single one of us. There's this shadow of Assyria, the shadow of death. But the gloom most fully understood, actually, if you go into the context of Isaiah 9 and, and really the chapters in either direction, it's actually the frown of God. See, this is in a context of, of God's judgment against his people. He raises up the Assyrians because they're uninterested, they're unrepentant, they're, they're hard to him. And so he raises up this enemy to be a sort of wake-up call to numb and calloused hearts. Go back and we see this in Isaiah 8. I'll just read a few verses, verses 19 and following. It says right before this this section in, in nine, the word but there in verse one of verse nine could be translated therefore, so you wanna look back. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, these people are going after anyone other than God. That's what, what's being said. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony, if they will not speak according to the word, it's because they have no dawn. They're in darkness. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry, and they, when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will, will speak contemptuously against the king and their God. 
and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into darkness. It's saying that, that God's people have ignored God, and they've ended up in darkness. You go back to Isaiah 7, and this is where, if you know the promise of this, this beautiful word, Emmanuel, God with us, it's given in Isaiah 7, and it's given to King Ahaz, and he says, Assyria is coming. And then you go back to Isaiah 6, and if you know this text, it's where the prophet Isaiah, who's, who's speaking here in verse 9, this is where he has this vision of, of the, the holy temple of God and the throne room of God. He sees God high and lifted up. And then God comes and he appoints Isaiah. He says, I want you to be a mouthpiece to my people, but when you go, guess what? You're going to speak. They're not going to listen. Their hearts will be dull of hearing. Or we could go back just to the way Isaiah begins. Chapter 1, verse 4. Oh, sinful nation a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken their Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. See, what it's saying is that all the gloom and all the darkness and all the fracture and all the brokenness, it's not just horizontal. It's not just the things that are around us, that it has a source. That it's when we get numb to God, things go sideways. We see it all around us, but God's doing this place, saying, oh, you have enemies around but it's under my frown. The bullies, the death, God's judgment. There's a lot of gloom that we find ourselves in this text, but the gloom won't last. That's Isaiah 9. It it comes into this this sorrow, and it says it's not going to last, that a great light is gonna shine. I love how this text actually is used of Christ in Matthew chapter four is the announcement of his, his public ministry. And what's really neat is that, that it actually takes the place where, where brokenness would have began in the northern parts of Israel. It says that's actually the announcement of Christ's reign and this light to come and this redemption that's gonna come. So it's at the place of the brokenness, where the brokenness began is where God actually begins the healing. Look at this in Matthew chapter four, verse 12 and following. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he, speaking of Jesus, withdrew to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness, they've seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then listen to this, from that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. See, we can live in a land of gloom, but we get to live with hope. Notice that the very place where the war was going to break out is the very place that Christ came to undo the war. At the time Isaiah was prophesying, God's people were facing some really big enemies that cast some very long shadows. And things were going to get worse. If you know the history of Israel, things were actually going to get worse. But God spoke and said, a great light's coming. On the other side of the darkness is light. Let's say that again. On the other side of the darkness is light. On the other side of your darkness and our darkness is light. We just wait for it. One of the things I um, love about flying is that it's always sunny when you fly. If you fly during the day, it's always sunny. You take off from SeaTac down in Seattle, and it's, it's overcast, and it's drizzle, and it's 37, and it's stormy, and, and it's, it's dim. But you take off, and as the plane begins to climb, 
And, and it just the, the rain is beating on, on the windows, and, and you end up in this cloud bank, and you can't see anything. You can't see anywhere. But as you continue to climb through the darkness, it begins to lighten. The, 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 that it begins to, the, you can't see anything still, but, but, but the, the, the air around you begins to lighten. And then all of a sudden, the nose of the plane, it, it, it breaks through this, this cloud barrier. And what's great about flying out of Seattle, particularly if you're flying south and you sit on the left-hand side of the plane by the window, is you're going to look out and you're going to see snow-capped reindeer towering above the clouds. And it's bright and it's brilliant. The rain has stopped, the storm has stopped, the sun is up, and then you actually get the warmth of the sun through the window. See, on the other side of the darkness, the light is there. And sometimes the circumstances of our lives, they veil it, they they remove it, we can't see it, but it's still there. The great light will dawn. All is merry, all is bright. I love how in the Lord of the Rings, this epic battle between good and, and evil, it's, it's so full of shadow, being cast everywhere, so full of challenges, so full of adversity, so full of struggles. And there's, this really be- there's so many beautiful scenes, but there's this beautiful conversation between a guy named Samwise and Frodo. Frodo, the, uh, kind of the, the hero, but really I think it's Samwise, his, his friend who's just so faithful and dutiful, and they've been through so much, and, and they're, they're sitting there, and they're, they're broken, and they're weary, and they're tired, and they've seen death, and they've seen struggle, and seen starvation, and seen cold. And then Samwise says this. It's like in the great stories, the ones that really matter. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out all the clearer. I'm going to take that and say that's, that's the, the takeaway from the sermon. Let me rephrase it. The darkness will pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, he will shine out the clear. We get to live in this land of gloom with hope, but we get to live in this land of, of doom with hope. And this is even better because God. I'll just say because God, not just because of God, just God. God's the reason this actually works out. This text makes entirely clear that the solution to our greatest problems do not come from within, but from above. It's a child of the 80s. Um, there's a number of different cultural uh, relics that are very loud to me. There's one song that's probably loudest to me. I thought we'd do a little interaction. If you are someone who was alive during the 80s, can you name a song that was very popular in the 80s? When you think of the 80s and you think of a song, can you, can you just throw out a, it's got to be appropriate. This is church, right? So like PG-ish, okay? So uh, anyone think of a song, some sort of like, it, it, it was a phenomenon. I mean, it was viral. It was, it, before viral was a thing. Like, you know, it, it went global. Can anyone think of like a song that stands out to you from the 80s? Anyone? Eye of the Tiger, that is a fantastic song. Fantastic song. That's not the song, but that is a fantastic song. And I brought it up because I just wanted just a moment of a little levity, a little lightness in the time of gloom. All right, anyone else got like a song? And I, just like something that just, you go, this is an, when I think 80s, this is what I think. Don't worry, be happy. That's a great song. 
Sweet child of mine. All right, that, that might not be PG, but, but unless we're talking about Jesus, we'll, we'll, let's just say, I don't think that's what they were talking about. I don't think they were talking about the incarnation of the Lord our God. Um, all right, anyone else going? Living on a prayer, I love it. This is fantastic. I could keep going, but I won't because who knows what we'll say. I keep thinking Twisted Sister songs myself. Um, but it was a humanitarian effort to bring aid to Africa. Anyone got that song? What is that one? We Are the World. And I thought we might take a moment and sing it together. We won't. We won't. <laughs> but I did think about taking a moment and singing it together. Um, we Are the World. It was released in 1985. And it was this collection, if you don't, you know, you've probably seen like the new versions when the earthquakes happened in Haiti, they redid it like with Justin Bieber, so for those that are younger. Um, uh, but it came out in 1985 and assembled all the, the great musicians of the day. And uh, they got together and they sang, We Are the World, and this was released, it raised $65 million for humanitarian aid. In today's dollars, it's like $160 million or so. I know one of Chuck Rocks of the song, it's powerful, it did a lot of good. Um, we can do a lot of good in this world. I want you to hear that. But that can get misguided. Once you listen to the, the lyrics of, of the chorus, I'll just do the, you know, we are the world, we are the children, we are, you know. But then it goes into this line, there's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true we make a better day. Just you and me. Bob Dylan was one of the people that recorded this song, and he looked really uncomfortable. And when they performed it live, he looked really uncomfortable. And he was asked about it. He said, well, you know, it looked like you were uncomfortable. And he said something like this, humans can't save themselves. We can't save ourselves. Now, we can do a lot of good. Oh, I'm not ripping. Oh, praise God for the aid it raised. But we actually can't save ourselves. God knows that. that this text says that. The, the help that we need to our biggest problems, to the greatest gloom that we faced, will not come from within. And it will, won't come from around. It will come from above. Oh, we can tweak this problem and that. We can make little modifications, but we cannot bring the kind of shalom, the kind of wholeness. We can't bring the kind of unraveling of all the unraveling. You know, the, I love the song, Joy to the World. It talks about, may your blessings flow into the world as far as the curse is found. Only God can do that. Verse two, they saw a great light. They didn't create the light. On them a light has shone. Verse three, you have multiplied the nations. You have increased its joy. The you is not us, it's God. Verse four, talks about this yoke of his burden, the staff or shoulder, that the, the rod of the oppressor will be broken, and then has this little phrase, it's the day of Midian. That's a reference to another battle that God's people face back in the book of Judges. And, and the interesting thing about Midian, this is Gideon, and, and Gideon's got an army of 300 people. He's facing 32,000 enemies, and God gives victory through his divine intervention. Verse five, all the wars will cease. The result of God's intervention, all the war, notice this in this text, that for every boot, like it's, the battle's won, every garment rolled in blood, they'll be burned as fuel for the fire. God fought the battle, and then God did away with all of the weapons used for battle. I love how Ray Ortland says this in his commentary on Isaiah, he says, our liberator will not only defeat all the forces of evil, he will put a final end to conflict itself. Every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. 
the passive voice will be burned, whispers that the victory is not our accomplishment. We, uh, we step onto the battlefield after the victory is won, and all we do is celebrate. Oh, the darkness will pass. A new day is, is coming. And when the sun shines, he will shine out all the clearer. Well, look at the flow of these verses. There's this series of like, here, this light's coming. He's going to multiply the joy. And then there's this series of four, like for the yoke of his burden. And it begins to talk about God is intervening. He's bringing victory. He's doing away with all the wars and all these things. But then it, almost, it feels like it's like, it's growing, it's growing, it's growing. It's this incredible crescendo. But then look, look at verse six. It feels like it could be a letdown. God's going to do all these incredible things. For to us, a child is born. Really? You're going to create global peace. You're going to take care of all of the fighting, all of the darkness, all of the rebellion, all of, all of the angst, everything broken in this world by giving a baby. This is one of the reasons that it can be so easy to miss out on hope in this world. Like, we want impressive. We want fast, we want big. We want, we, we want something that, that feels bigger than the problems we face and God gives a baby. Again, Ray Ortland, I love, uh, love this insight. He says, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us is a child. The power of God is so far superior to all the big shots of this world that he can defeat them by coming as a mere child. His answers to the bullies swaggering through history is not to become an even bigger bully. His answer is Jesus. If we're honest, I mean, God confounds us here. I think this is one of the aspects of the Christian faith that is confounding, confusing, off-putting to people. How can a baby, how, how could one baby bring this sort of peace? Our Savior, our Deliverer, our Conqueror, our Liberator comes as a baby. Dependent, like this is God in flesh, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Like we sing those words around this... God came as a baby, weak and needy and dependent, to become the liberator. That just feels so foolish if we're honest. He goes to a cross. I mean, the story of the gospel, the story of his coming, it culminates and goes towards a cross where he's crucified. On a cross, it looked like he had been triumphed over. Not that he was triumphing, it looked like he'd lost. Then he goes to a tomb and in, in death. I mean, how could, you, how could you ever think that? I mean, it felt like the light was put out. It was buried. And if you know the story of the gospel, and we know he doesn't stay dead. Three days later, he rises from the grave just as the light dawns. In the birth of Christ, it also shatters the darkness with an empty tomb. It's a way of saying gloom won't win, darkness won't win. And the thing is, you got to understand, this is actually how salvation works out, that God humbles us to save us. He says you have to bow to a plan that you and I would never create. None of us would ever conceive of the salvation of the world through the coming of God as a little dependent baby. I remember being asked, as a number of years ago, someone asked me as they were exploring the faith, they said, why a baby? Why a cross? I said, because God designed this to disarm you. See, if God saved you according to your own plans, you might just come to it because you think it's wise or you think it's powerful. But God said, I'm gonna save you through that thing which you think is foolish and you think is weak. And then I, then I thought about, as I was having this conversation, I went into 1 Corinthians 
18, this incredible text, it says this in verse 18, for the word of the cross, it's folly to those who are perishing, but to us who is being saved, it is the power of God. It looks so dumb that God would die until it doesn't. Later on in 1 Corinthians, it says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. And it starts in a manger. It starts in a little feeding trough. And it looks so stupid. It looks so small. It looks so incapable. But through it, it's like this little light on Christmas Eve. It goes from one candle to the next, to the next, to the next, until the whole room is aglow. It's this dawn of redeeming grace. And if we'll see it, if, if, if you in this room, if you, are far, if you will see the wisdom and power of God to disarm all of the, Assyria was a global superpower, and God says, I'm going to disarm it through a baby. Oh, if you'll come to see it, then you'll begin to see this baby is who he really is. And there's this series of statements that are, that are given in verse 6. And really what these were was, it's, it's not just his roles, it's, it's actually a declaration of character. They say not, he won't just grow up into this. This is how he's born. He's Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Let me read it. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor, it actually means the Wonder Counselor. It's, it's the closest the Bible gets to the, the phrase supernatural. Mighty God, everlasting Father. It's, it's not saying, it's, it's not tipping into the Trinity of Father, Son, and Spirit. What it's saying is the Son is, is, is like a Father in protection and provision. Think about how good that would have been. Remember the context. The people that was, this was given to you weren't just in the gloom of the Assyrian oppression. They were in the gloom of God's judgment. To those people who say, I'm still your Father. I'm still your God. And this prince of peace, this prince of shalom, that as far as the curse is found, that Christ will come back and unravel it. Everything you need, every problem you face, all the gloom you can imagine, will be dispersed by this light. Again, Ray Ortland says it like this, look at Jesus, his wonderful counselor, he has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still enemies. Let's welcome him. Let's welcome his dominion. This light it will provide hope. And what this light goes on to do is it promises peace. That's verse 7. Again, I'm going to read from, from Ray, I think, just a couple more times. I just thought this quote was too good to pass. This child is the king to end all kings, saving us from failure, lifting us into his own justice and righteousness. He is Jesus Christ the Lord, our crucified, risen, reigning, and coming Savior. And he will not come back to tweak this problem and that. He will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever. This is the best part of the increase of his government and of peace. There will be no end. The empire of grace will forever expand, forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never come one moment when we will say, this is the limit. 
He can't think of anything new. We've seen it all. No, the finite will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite. And every new movement will be better than the last. The zeal of the, 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 zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And that's loaded in verse 7. It says, this one that comes is the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And then verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. You'll never plumb the depths. Of, you'll never get to the end of it. It's the dawn of redeeming grace. And there is no sunset. It just goes on forever, better and better and better and better and better. You will never get tired of it. Some people think in heaven, in the new creation, you get tired. You won't because you're finite. You're still finite. But God is infinite. You'll never plumb the depths of any of his attributes. You never plumb the depths of any of his creativity. You never plumb the depths of any of his kindness or mercy or stuff. You'll never get to the end of it. You'll never get bored. You'll never get tired of it. And the last part of that statement is so important. The last part of verse 7, it's, it's, we could say maybe it's the key of the entire thing. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, that's where we keep going back to is this world wants to say, is the clouds roll in again and it hides the sun. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this as news breaks out again. As sickness shows up again. His relational angst hits again. His layoffs happen again. His medical tests come back again. And the clouds roll in and the sun gets dark. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A poem that captures this struggle of living in this world with this sort of promise and this kind of already, not yet, the Christ has begun it, but it's not yet complete. Um, this sort of living in the midst of gloom we sometimes experience and find ourselves in is, is the poem, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. It was written by Henry Wordsworth Longfellow at Christmas of 1863. At the time when he wrote this, he was a 57-year-old widower of six. America was in the throes of the Civil War. His oldest son, he'd just gotten news that he'd been nearly paralyzed in battle, so he was very, very injured. And he wrote this poem to capture what he was feeling it was tradition for churches at this time, they would ring their belfries, their bell towers, they would ring bells on Christmas Day as a, as a reflection, kind of this, this audible echo uh, to, to reference this peace on earth, peace on earth. As you heard the bells, it was just peace on earth, the king has come, tapping into texts like this. But as you looked around the world at that time, think about it, in the middle of civil war and all the injustice and all the trauma and all the brokenness in the, in the, in the nation and in his own home, it just seemed like to mock this idea of peace on earth. Let me quote, let me quote the, the poem to you. I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries, the bell towers of all Christendom, had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth and goodwill to many. Saying, oh, it's happening. The light is coming. And then the poem turns. So he's hearing the bells and this declaration, the light has come. The great light has come. The text like the great light's come. But we look around and says, where? He goes, in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. I think that's just honest. 
I think it's just honest. Oh, the light gives hope, but sometimes the dark seems really real. Oh, the light is there, but sometimes the clouds seem really thick. Oh, the, the great light has dawned, but sometimes the gloom still settles in. And, and what do we do in those moments? Well, I would suggest to you, whenever that happens, look again at the end of verse seven. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. No matter what it looks like, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God will do this. The zeal, it, the, the word zeal can mean to be red in the face. Like with that sort of intensity, God will do. And what, uh, Henry Wordsworth Longfellow, he, he got this. He, he got this. He got the, the image. You know, think again about the, the spreading of the light on Christmas Eve. Oh, what starts as a single light one day will fill the room. One, what starts at the birth of Christ will one day fill this earth. And he finally got it. And he, and he shifts in the poem and he, and he ends this way. Oh, hate strong, it mocks a song. But then he goes on and says, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. Oh, that's a good reminder. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. He's not, he's not distant from your darkness. The son is out of the tomb. He's reigning at the right hand of the father. He is coming back. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. The darkness will pass. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. A new day will come. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And when Jesus, the sun shines, he will shine out the clear. I started um, this sermon with the last verse of Holy Night. I want to end it with the first verse of Holy Night. Silent night. Holy night, all is calm, all is bright. Round young virgin, mother and child, holy infant, so tender and mild. Sleep in heavenly peace. Whenever I've sung that or heard it, um, the thing I've always thought is the Lord Jesus falling asleep in Mary's arms. And not that that's not true, but as I've been wrestling, walking through, sitting under Isaiah 9 this week, um, maybe it's not just directed at Christ, that last line. Maybe it's an offer to us. Because the king has come, we too can sleep. And heaven's brought peace. The wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace can allow us to just sit. Child is born, a son is given. A great light is shown. The darkness will pass. The new day will come. Oh, and when it does, it will shine out the clear. Let's pray. Father, you promised to do great things through that which began so small. And really, from at least a human standpoint, what appears to be very ordinary, the birth of a child. But as we read in texts like this, this was no ordinary child. Father, this is the child that was born that might wear the weight of the world on his shoulders so that we don't have to. Holy Spirit, would you make him very loud to us? I, I imagine in this room, there are people that are living in bright days right now. And we praise you for that. We recognize it's by your good hand. There's people in very ordinary spots. God, there's people that are, feel like they're living in a land of great darkness. Would you shine on them the light of this 
text and the truth of what Christ has done. God, we thank you that because of what Jesus has accomplished, it's all from him, that it's not for us to fix. It's not for us to solve. It's not for us to mend. Oh, God, we have work to do, but this work is his alone. The help we need doesn't come from within, and it doesn't come from without, but it comes from above. It comes from you. So do you make it real to us? And God, as we want to, like, like words, like, Longfellow, God, as we get swept up in the, in the news feeds and the headlines and, and our own relationships and experiences, God, that, that, that maybe, just maybe, you're not gonna do it. When we go back to this text and hear the promise, we will look back on the manger and see the birth. Would we look at the cross and see the sacrifice and we look at the empty tomb and see the first fruits of a new creation where darkness doesn't win? May we live in the dawn and coming of this redeeming grace given to us by your kindness and the work of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond to God as we do every single week by receiving communion together and responding through song. Um, the band's going to play a number of songs. You don't need to feel rushed during this time. I, I really encourage you to let the truth of, of, of these words from Isaiah 9 just, just sing over you. Just speak over you. Just bring whatever it is that burdens you. Let, let, let the truth, all of your problems, every single major problem you have is taken care of by Christ. One day, one day. Let the truth of this text be loud. And then when you're ready, go to the, this table with, with wine or with juice and bread representing the, the body and blood of Christ given. If God wouldn't withhold his son, what, what good thing would he withhold? And we're told in the Bible that part of why we take communion, why we as a church take communion so regularly, it's a, it's, a, it's a weekly reminder. We're proclaiming the Lord's death and his victory until he comes again. We're reminding ourselves that the shadows won't win. Reminding ourselves of what Christ has accomplished. And you heard it in this text, those that were rebellious to God, oh, sinful nation. He saved them. He, he, he reconciled them. He offered them peace, just like he does to us. So if you're in this room and, and you know you need grace and you know you need forgiveness, confess your need to God and then come to this table and receive these elements and worship the, the one who came to set everything right. Go to the table as you feel led.